The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Mark chapter 16. This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And this morning I'm speaking on the subject, He's alive, now what? He's alive, now what? Uh, Mark here in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Uh, gives his account of this event we call the resurrection. And the resurrection was a real event that really happened in history. It's a real event that changed the course of human history. Mark wrote his gospel. He knew that the original recipients of his gospel account were mostly Roman. And Roman believers were living under the threat of persecution at the hand of the Roman emperor. Can you imagine this gospel uh, going into a first century church and as people read it, many of them had had their own family members or friends locked up for the faith. Some of them perhaps had lost loved ones because of their loved ones' boldness for Jesus. Uh, The ones who originally read this gospel had a, a national leader who was antagonistic towards the faith. You can imagine these folks were living in turbulent times. They had to look around at society and say, what's going wrong with the world? They perhaps felt like uh, the faith had endless enemies. It really cost them something to live for Jesus. Uh, Mark knew that they needed encouragement. Mark knew that they needed boldness. So he reminded them of what happened on that great morning when Jesus defeated death. And he did this in order to encourage them. I realize that we may not be first century believers living under the reign of the cruel Roman emperor Nero. We may not be susceptible to being imprisoned for our faith or martyred for our faith, but we indeed live in difficult times, do we not? We indeed are facing strange seasons. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of hurt and pain and anger in society nowadays. We don't know what the future holds. And in this type of world, we may be tempted to give up. We may be tempted to doubt the faith. We may be consistently discouraged. And I'm convinced that we're in many ways like Mark's readers. We need to open our eyes to see the glorious good news of the resurrection so that we can be rejuvenated and refreshed in our faith. I remember several years ago when I went to the first time to an eye doctor. I I thought that maybe I, I needed to get my eyes checked, and so Laura got me set up to go to the eye doctor at Walmart and have an eye exam. And I remember, you know, staring at these charts and then putting things in front of my eyes. And man, that always kind of messes you up, doesn't it? I don't like anybody touching my eyeballs, right? That's no fun. So anyway, so they're running all their tests. And finally, they got me a pair of glasses that they thought would be just right for me. And I remember standing in that little open area in Walmart. You've seen it, right? Up there near the claw machine where y'all try to win the stuffed animals. You know where I'm talking about, right? Okay, that's me that tries to win the stuffed animals. By the way, I don't play the one at Ingalls. That one's rigged, all right? But anyways, now I can win some stuffed animals in a claw machine, all right? I'll just tell you right now. But anyways, so I was standing in the front, the open area there, and the doctor had me put these glasses on. So he said, now look out towards the store. And I remember I could see signs that previously I couldn't read. 
I could make out boxes on the shelves. It was like I was seeing everything in HD or 4K. Things changed when I got glasses. Now I'm bad. I don't wear my glasses and I ought to. So, little secret, you can sleep on the back row, and I can't really tell. See, I can't tell if you're sleeping or not. Are you really paying attention? Okay. So, supposed to wear my glasses. When I wear my glasses, things look different. Now, I'm aware this morning that sometimes we need our spiritual eyesight adjusted spiritually. Sometimes we get so stuck in the rut of life on planet Earth that we forget there is a great God who loves us. We forget that Jesus was the Son of God who carried all of our sins and our guilt and our shame away. We forget that he's defeated death and this world's not our home. We're living for another life. We forget that we've got hope and peace and joy and boldness through Jesus. And we need to remember the resurrection. He's alive. What now? Consider several truths from our text, from our narrative before us. Number one this morning, I want you to see from the story before us, this truth, Jesus deserves our devotion. Jesus deserves our devotion. I believe we see this in verses one through two. Read there in your Bible, follow along with me, follow the story. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him, speaking of Jesus. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. Now notice these three women, Mary, Mary, and Salome, go and buy spices when the Sabbath is over. Now, the Sabbath in Jewish thought ended at sundown on Saturday. The Sabbath was Saturday. It was thought to begin at sundown on Friday and end at sundown on Saturday. And notice the posture of these women. As soon as they've got the opportunity to go out and buy something for Jesus, they do it. Good Jews could not buy or sell or trade on the Sabbath. As soon as the sun goes down, they go out and buy spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Many believe this would have been a mixture of olive oil and different spices. Now, it's important to note that the Jews' burial custom was different than that of other ancient cultures. Some could read this text and think that the women are somehow engaging in an Egyptian-like process of preparing or entombing a body. The Jews had no such process. What they did on this occasion was not for preserving the body necessarily, What they did here in Jewish thought was a sign of respect. It was a ceremonial way of showing one's love for the loved one who had passed away. So notice this. These women here are not meeting a practical need and tombing the body of Jesus. They are engaging in an affectionate act, paying their last respects, showing their love for our Lord. Look at verse number two, how the text continues. It says, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. So it's the first day of the week, Sunday. It will soon become the new Sabbath, the day of worship for God's people. 
Notice they go very early in the morning. So they buy the spices on Saturday evening. Then they get up very early the next morning. Now, what time do you think that is? How early is early for y'all? Tell me out loud. Somebody just throw something at me. 6 a.m., all right, 6 a.m. Anybody think 8 a.m. when you think early? Anybody doing pretty good to get up by 10 a.m., all right? Anyway, just want to be free in Jesus and admit it this morning, all right? Many would tell us that this was around 4 or 5 a.m. They got up before daybreak. Anybody get up regularly at 4 a.m.? You know that person. They normally let you know about it, right? I'll get up at 4 a.m. every morning. All right, so anyways. They get up at 4 a.m. Many tell us they left at dark to go place these spices and oil on Jesus' body. Maybe the sun came up as they reached the tomb. Now, it's a reminder for us, Jesus got up on Sunday morning. Amen? But these women noticed their devotion. They spent money for spices to put on a dead body. They got up at 4 a.m. What's more, they traveled while it was still dark. Now, this morning, I got up early and came to church. There was a woman jogging in our neighborhood. Not really a big deal. But in the first century world, for a woman or two women to be out walking and traveling, we believe this trip was around two miles from Bethany to the tomb, for a woman, for women to be alone traveling was unheard of in the first century world. This wasn't considered safe or kosher, if you will. What are these women doing? They're compelled. They love Jesus. They're brokenhearted over his death. They've got to go see him. They've got to fulfill their obligations and show their last sign of respect to the Lord. Notice their devotion. Notice their regard. Notice their seriousness and their love for Jesus. And we get this great lesson from the resurrection scene. Jesus deserves our devotion. Oh, this morning can I ask you in your heart and mind, is there an affection for the Lord similar to the one these women had? Are you willing to spend your resources in worship and service to him? Are you willing to give of your time for him? Are you willing to experience some danger on his behalf? Hey, in your life, is he a priority? Do you even think about him during the week? Are you leveraging your time and your talent and your treasures and service for his kingdom? Do you spend time with him listening to what he has to say through his word? Do you worship him and pray and talk to him during the week? See, in your heart, notice that the Bible here reminds us when it comes to King Jesus, he deserves our devotion. These women gave their devotion so well. Number two this morning from our text, uh, notice that what we see in the following verses, not only does Jesus deserve our devotion, but we, we see secondly from our text this great truth. Not only does Jesus deserve our devotion, but we must keep his promises in mind. Jesus deserves our devotion, but number two this morning, we see we must keep his promises in mind. Follow along with me in verse number three. It says, they were saying to one another, 
who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? So the original language depicts this conversation that is continual. In other words, they keep on saying this over and over again. As they're walking the two miles, they have repeatedly said to one another, what are we going to do about the stone in front of the entrance to the tomb? You see, a first century tomb was many times dug out of a hillside. There would be a narrow entrance that went into a large inner chamber. The front of that entrance to the tomb, there was normally a heavy stone rolled in front of the entrance to secure the entrance to the tomb. And many times such a stone would require the manpower of two to three men. We read in one gospel account that Joseph Arimathea was able somehow to roll this stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. But here the women know, we're not going to be able to roll the stone away. We're going to need help. Now notice in their question that they have concluded that Jesus is dead. The resurrection is not on their radar. Now, it should have been because earlier in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus had told the disciples, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to be killed, but three days later, I will be raised. He said that in Mark 8, 31. But not only did he say it in Mark 8, 31, he said it in Mark 9, 31 as well. Two times he told them, I will be killed, then I will be raised. And as if, as if that wasn't enough, he told him again in Mark 10, 34. Three times the Lord had told them, I will be killed and then I will be raised. And as if three times wasn't enough, he told them on a fourth occasion. Mark 14, 28, son of man will be raised, go meet him afterwards in Galilee. So notice these women here. They have forgotten Jesus' promises. They aren't thinking about the words of our Lord. As one have said, they have concluded that Jesus is dead. There is no hope that he is alive in their minds. All they're thinking about is death. They aren't thinking about the possibility of a resurrection. These women stand as a reminder for us that we have to do a good job of keeping Jesus' promises in mind. We, like these women, are susceptible to forgetting God's word, to forgetting Jesus' truth. Now, we, we could blame them for their fear. We could, or excuse me, we shouldn't blame them for our fear. We could perhaps be tempted to blame them for forgetting about the resurrection this morning. But as we study our text, we're reminded that we're often like Mary, Mary, and Salome. Don't we sometimes allow our minds to become forgetful of what Jesus has said? Isn't it true that sometimes resurrection realities are the last thing on our minds? May we be on guard against the busyness and disappointments and enticements of a fallen world. May we be on guard to not allow such things to blind our minds and our thinking from gospel truth. God, remember this, if we lose sight of Jesus' promises, we'll surely succumb to the same sad state of the women in our text. We've got to remember Jesus' promises. 
Number three this morning, I want you to see this truth from our text. You have to stay confident that the resurrection really happened. We've got to stay confident that the resurrection really happened. Now, look in your Bible at the next verse, and I'll just read, starting in verse number four. It says, looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. So now at this point, the women maybe aren't thinking about a resurrection. They're just noticing something's different. Somebody is perhaps at the tomb. Maybe somebody has come here and they're tending to the body of Jesus. Maybe they're here to see one of the other bodies in the tomb, as there were many bodies, many times buried in one of these tombs. They just see that it's open. The Bible says when they enter the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So, so they enter and they see this man. Now, still that may not have been too out of the ordinary. See, when you entered, you'd crawl through a narrow space to gain access to the tomb. And when you entered, there would be a large room with a seating area in the middle for guests, for loved ones of a deceased person to visit the body. Then there were shelves on the side of the wall where bodies were placed. And many times loved ones would come in and visit and place flowers or spices or herbs or oils or gifts on top of the body. So it wasn't too strange for these women to see a man sitting in the center of the tomb. However, as they got a glimpse of his garment, they noticed something was different. He was dressed in a white robe. Now, the language here refers to a garment that was different than the normal outer cloak that men would wear in the first century. This is a long, flowing, out-of-the-ordinary robe. What's more, it is white. It is bright white. It is gleaming white as Jesus' clothes were at the transfiguration. And the women notice that this is an unusual individual. He has clothing, according to Hebrew thought, that is in alignment with what angels would typically wear. And the women catch on to the cue. This isn't an ordinary man. This is an angelic man. This is more than a man. This is an angel. This is a messenger sent from God. And so no wonder they were alarmed. And the angel tells them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. Now notice his declaration that Jesus has risen. The original language of the text, the angel uses a perfect tense verb. It refers to an action in the past that has abiding results. The angel is pointing out that something momentous has happened. Jesus has changed the timeline of human history. He has been raised and he is alive and his resurrection has abiding results on all of human history. He uses language that contains a passive tense passive voice verb that depicts the Lord. Theologians call it the divine passive. It is something that God has done. The angel is announcing God has changed things. God has done something huge. He has raised his son from the dead and he is alive. 
and hear the message of the angel this morning, we can be confident that death has been defeated. Our sins have been paid for. The Son of God is at the right hand of God, and he's also in our hearts. He is alive. Now, I want you to think this morning there are skeptics and scoffers who would say this event is not true. They would minimize Christianity to mere metaphor. They would make Christianity in something like King Arthur-like folklore. They would call this thing a fable, a figment of our imagination, a fantasy, something of folklore. There's many theories thrown at the resurrection to try to disprove this event. I find it strange that skeptics have to create theories to disprove the resurrection. In doing so, they almost uh, prove that there is actually something to this event. Uh, See, many religionists and many philosophers who are anti-Christian know that there is indeed uh, merit to Christianity because of the years of changed lives, because of the devotion of God's children. Even some know that when you study the Bible, you learn that this is a book that is grounded in history. It is a book unlike any other book. In fact, did you know this? Your Bible is backed by more ancient Greek manuscripts than the works of popular Greek literature from antiquity. Did you know this? There are more Greek manuscripts to stand behind your New Testament than there are to stand behind works of the great Greek author Homer, who was popularly studied in our high schools and universities. There are more Greek manuscripts to validate this book. Did you know this? You can study the emperors, the leaders, the rulers throughout the New Testament and discover all of their names are in alignment with history. You can study currency and coinage and animals and locations and customs and know that this is a history book that, is, that speaks truth. You can even study the maps. This is what makes Christianity unique. Compare it to the Book of Mormonism. You can study the maps and know that these geographical locations are correct. Know this, that the Bible can be trusted. And because of the way in which the Bible is in alignment with history and because of the way in which it gives good history, skeptics and scoffers have often tried to disprove it through the resurrection through various theories. One of them would be the swoon theory. In the swoon theory, letter A in your outline, some would say, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He merely passed out. He was placed into the tomb and later he was revived. And as a result, there was this great hoax about a resurrection. We know that could not be true. Consider the way Jesus was beaten, we learned last week, not just once, but twice at the hands of Roman authorities. On top of that, he was beaten so badly he couldn't even carry his own cross, as custom would have it, till Golgotha. Simon of Cyrene had to carry it for him. And we know when Jesus was on the cross, it normally took a criminal two or three days to die. Jesus was beaten so badly he died in a matter of mere hours. The gospel account proves that the swoon theory cannot be correct. There's a swoon theory. There's also the stolen body theory. Some would say some party, a group, maybe the Romans, maybe the Jews, maybe the disciples, who knows, stole the body of Jesus and the disciples created this great story called the resurrection and deceived people with it. 
Well, the motives for stealing Jesus' body seem suspect. If the Jews would have stole Jesus' body, surely when the church began to grow, surely when synagogues become, became overrun with Christians, surely then the Jews would have stepped forward and said, here's his body, he's not really alive. The Romans wouldn't have been motivated to steal his body. The guards would have never allowed that to happen. For a guard to not man his post well meant that that guard would be killed. The Romans couldn't have stole his body. Oh, what about the disciples? Could they have stolen the body? Well, consider the disciples' account. Consider their account of the resurrection. They have women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. In a first century world, a woman wasn't even allowed to testify in a court of law. On top of that, consider the disciples' account. As they give the gospel story, they share a lot of less than flattering details about themselves. This is not the type of literature that is normally made up. There seems to be an air of authenticity about it. The swoon theory, the stolen body theory, do not hold water. Thirdly, there's also what we would call the substitute theory. Some postulate that a body double was sent from Galilee to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but someone died in his place. Now, now we could ask about that theory. What type of individual would willingly go to the horrors of the cross on behalf of someone else? We have to answer, only God would do that. Only God would send his son to embrace that type of pain on behalf of someone else. Substitute theory doesn't seem to hold water. You could also think about this. When Jesus was on the cross, people walked by and mocked him. They knew who he was. They knew it was Jesus. They had seen him teach. They actually, while he was on the cross, quoted his sermons back to him and insulting him. They knew this was not a body double. It was indeed the Galilean. It was indeed Jesus. The substitute theory does not seem to hold water. Why do you share all of this this morning? Church, I want to remind you that we can have confidence in the resurrection. Indeed, we have a faith but we have a reasonable faith. Now, I'll never forget on one occasion, I had a group of Mormons knock on my door. Now, they're often a little bit overwhelmed at first after they knocked on my door. But I've learned this about them. When they have someone who will actually talk to them, they will continue to talk to them. They'll come back and visit over and over and over and over again. On one occasion, I kept, I kept bringing up history. I kept bringing up different things about the Book of Mormon. The fact that there has never, it's never been discovered that there's an actual language called Reformed Egyptian. The Mormons would, would propose that at the Hill of Cumorah in New York, there was this great battle where two million people died and you can't find any archeological evidence of that event. Whereas an event like uh, the death that happened at Mount Masada, we can find in, in history, every, we can find in the dirt, all types of archaeological evidence. And as I kept up bringing up that evidence and kept 
arguing for the Christian faith and for the Bible and the folly of Mormonism, finally one broke down crying and said, you've just got to have faith. I said, I do have faith, but I have a reasonable faith that's built in a historical event called the resurrection. It was verified by eyewitnesses. There's nothing in this book that's out of alignment with history. And know this this morning, church, you can be confident You have a faith, but you have a reasonable faith. And the crucifixion and the resurrection are real events in history that change history. We learned this morning we can be confident in the resurrection. And number four this morning, we we see this great truth. We see from our Bible that the Lord is always willing to restore us when we fail. Look at verse number seven. As the story continues, the angel tells uh, the women there, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Now notice the, the angel wants the women to go inform the disciples of this fact that Jesus is alive, but he names one disciple by name. Which disciple is it? Any idea why he would name Peter by name? Maybe this goes back to Matthew chapter 15, that Peter's going to have a hand in the establishment of the church, and he will. Acts chapter 2, he preaches on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people believe the gospel message and join the church. Maybe it has something to do with that, but I think it also has something to do with the fact that Peter had recently denied the Lord. Y'all remember that story? Jesus is arrested and all of the disciples flee. Peter sticks around at a distance trying to see what happens to Jesus. One person approaches him and says, you were with him, weren't you? You're one of his followers. Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. Second person, yeah, you are. You're you're one of Jesus' followers cohorts no not me third person approaches him yeah you are we can tell by your accent you're from the north Peter curses and denying that he knew Jesus and here on resurrection morning the Lord gives us this little tidbit the angel mentions the name of Peter Why? He gives us this glorious truth here to remind us that even when we've blown it, even when we failed, even when we've been off in the hinterlands wandering far from the Lord, the Lord's always willing with open arms to receive us again. Know this about the character of your Lord. He is love. He is not willing that any should perish. He welcomes back every prodigals with a feast and a party he has created you for a forever relationship with him you don't ever need to doubt his love you can't do anything to make him disown you you can't do anything to make him no longer love you he is always willing and ready to receive you again oh I've counseled people before and I don't know Patrick 
is the Lord willing to take me back again? I've blown it. I want to go back, but I don't know if I deserve it. I've often told people the Lord wants you to come back more than you want to come back. By all means, yes, return to your loving Heavenly Father. And know this this morning, maybe you've got a failure. Maybe you're checking into church for the first time in a long time. And maybe you're wondering if the Lord can overlook something you've done recently. Maybe all the things that are going on in the world, you feel dirty inside because of anger and frustration. Know this, the Lord loves you. And right now, he'll touch your heart and heal you and forgive you. Hear the message from Peter. Lastly, this morning, I want you to see this great truth for our text. Jesus wants us to tell others about him. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus got up from the grave and he went walking to Galilee, back up to the north country. You will see him there just as he told you. Jesus had told the disciples in Mark 14, 28, after I'm raised, I'm going to go to Galilee and I'll meet you there. So the angel says to the women, y'all should have remembered. He's going to be raised and he's going to go to Galilee. Go meet him there. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now, that doesn't mean that they never told anyone anything. Eventually, they did. You can go read verse 10. Eventually, they announced what the angel told them to announce. You could go read Matthew's account, and he tells them more detail of how they shared the news of the resurrection. These women were faithful to relay the message from the angel. And in Matthew chapter 28, we read a more detailed account of what happened afterwards. We find a passage we often call the Great Commission, the marching orders for the church, the teaching wherein Jesus gave gave us, church with a capital C, our mission. And he gave us, church with a lowercase c, tabernacle, our mission as well. We often quote Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And look, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We often quote that. We have mission conferences and such and mission sermons and preachers tell us we ought to witness based on those verses. But consider verse 16, the ver- two verses before that commission, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. Why did they travel to Galilee? The women had told them because of what the angel had said, y'all, we should have remembered what Jesus said. We got to go to Galilee. So they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice here that the women and their faithfulness to spread the message from the angel resulted in this thing we call the Great Commission. And we see in this text and we see in our Bible a reminder 
that Jesus wants us to tell others about him. The Lord has given us this commission and this mandate. So you may not be at the empty tomb this morning. You may not be a first-hand eyewitness to the resurrection as these women were. But know this, the Lord wants to use you to tell others about him. You've been created in the image of God for a forever relationship with the Lord. And the Lord doesn't want you to just reflect, relate to him. He wants you to reflect him as well. He wants you to know him, but also make him known. Why? Because all of human history is about getting glory for King Jesus. And he gets glory when people live in a right relationship with himself. And he gets glory when we let others know about the opportunity for that relationship. So I ask you this morning, are you telling others about Jesus? Are you living your life on mission? Do you live to know him? Do you live also to make him known? Are you walking with him daily, like spending time with him and letting him be the center of your life? But are you also not just walking with him, but witnessing for him? Are you going out to your circle of influence, students, as school starts? Are you going to be in your circle of influence, living a different, distinct type of lifestyle that lets others see a change in you? Uh, friends, are you, are you going into your place of work and showing and radiating the life and love of Jesus? Are you fighting hard against sin in your life that may keep others from seeing Jesus in you? Are you making war against those bad attitudes that don't represent Christ well? And then what's more, are you prepared? Have you studied the word? Have you prepared a quick testimony or a gospel presentation? Are you ready when people say, hey, there's something different about you? Are you ready when someone goes through the trial and they ask for help? Are you ready to tell someone about Jesus? Know this, we've got the same mandate as these women. The Lord wants us to tell others about him. So live the life. Be prepared to share gospel words and pray. Make a list of individuals like the one I've got in the back of my Bible of individuals to whom you can witness. And know this, your mission isn't just to enjoy God. Your mission is to glorify God. You've been called to walk with him and witness for him as well. Oh, and if there's something we need, this dark world in which we live in, it's a revival of evangelism and the local church. Believers telling others about Jesus. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.